Well, we made it to the end of Jonah. So there'll be no more questions after tonight, right? We'll, we'll have everything figured out. Um, we'll know it well. <clears throat> well, anyway, for those of you uh, who are of driving age, think back to when you were learning to drive. Something that every one of us probably learned early on was about blind spots. Uh, we learned what they are and where they are, how to avoid them, and as we're operating a vehicle. We would have been told, check your rearview mirrors, check your sides before you merge. Don't drive in the tractor trailers, blind spots. It's not going to end up well for you. The language of blind spots may have been used in our places of business and school as well, and they might still be. Most people know that a blind spot refers to an area where your vision is obstructed. In a car, that includes wherever you're, you can't see in a quick glance or through your mirrors. Uh, we may talk also about blind spots when uh, driving or even our weaknesses in business also, using the terminology. But how often do we think about spiritual blind spots? David speaks of this reality in Psalm 139 when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What an incredible prayer this is. And it's one that I was reminded as I studied this passage and I hope that this will ring in the back of our minds as we look here at the final section and close our study in Jonah. In this book, we saw a prophet who had blind spots and they're pointed out to us clearly as the readers. And if you're like me, you might be quick to look down on Jonah and say, come on, man, how did you not see that? But one thing that this book, as well as the entirety of the witness of Scripture does, is it points to the reality that we, too, have blind spots. We have blind spots when we drive. We have blind spots in our professions where we struggle and sometimes fall short. But most importantly, we have blind spots in relationships with God and with others. Or maybe to take it a step further, sometimes there are things that when pointed out to us, we get defensive quickly because they, we know they exist, but we, we refuse to acknowledge that they're there. We know that we need to work on them, but we're too hard-headed or defiant to say, to say as David did, Lord, search my heart, reveal these things to me and change me to lead me in the way everlasting. It's easy for me to see the faults in Jonah because I struggle with similar thoughts and problems. I see my own downfalls in Jonah. And I know, too, that I suffer from the Jonah syndrome, caring more about my own comforts and then proclaiming the good news of Christ to the, to the lost at times. My hypocrisy is, and it was evident as I dug into this passage. And the final passage of Jonah here is the climax of the story. And in it, we see the heart of Jonah revealed. And the reality is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, it reveals our hearts as well. A takeaway idea or thought from this passage and ultimately from the book of Jonah is a statement from God that Jonah would have, been, would have known well and one that we will visit again in a little while in Romans. In Romans 9.15, Paul quotes from Exodus 33.19, where God says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God will be gracious and merciful 
to whom he sees fit. This is the truth put on bright display in the four chapters of Jonah, and it comes out loud and clear here at the end of the book. And as we dive into this passage, from my understanding, I believe it's helpful to understand the book that the book of Jonah, at least when it comes to the final chapter, does not run completely chronologically. Uh, when I, what, I, what I mean by that is we see in chapter 3, verse 10, that God did not destroy the city of Nineveh. So realistically, in chapter 3, we kind of have this high flyover view of what took place as the story unfolded. Now, in chapter 4, it zooms in, and we think, I think it's safe to say that uh, this chapter probably takes place between verses 9 and 10 in chapter 3. Uh, this can be helpful just as we view this passage in light of how Jonah wouldn't have known at this point how the story ended. In the very beginning of this section, in verse 5, we're told that he goes out to the city and to the east, out of the city and to the east, he builds himself a booth, and he sits there waiting to see what might come of the city. There's nothing in the text to indicate that he sat there waiting and hoping that God would spare the city. In a way, he does the exact opposite of what almost any preacher that I know would do. They would be ecstatic if they saw a movement of God that Jonah just had the opportunity to see. This is the single greatest turning from sin towards God that's ever recorded in human history. An entire city, a massive city, by the standards, especially of that day, repented and believed in God to the point where they even put sackcloth on their animals because they recognized the error of their way. This is a dream come true for anyone who has ever shared the gospel with someone else in hopes that they would come to know God. But therein lies the problem. Jonah did what God commanded him, but did he do it out of a heart of love and compassion for the people of Nineveh, or just out of duty? I think we saw the answer to that two weeks ago when we read that he was exceedingly angry when God was gracious and merciful to the Ninevites. And that sets the stage again for this section where it seems as though we witness Jonah go out of the city and build himself this shelter to sit and watch as if he's getting ready to watch the movie of God's wrath being poured out on sinners. Instead of staying in the city and continuing to share God's word with them, helping them understand who God is, he decides to go camp in the wilderness, which might be a good representation of his spiritual state at this time. Now in the area outside of Nineveh, which is modern day northern Iraq, the shelter that he built probably would have been a little bit different than what we would think of if we were to build a shelter around here. Here in central PA, we look outside, we see trees and shrubs, moss, things like that, that we would be able to fashion a decent shelter out of. But in Mesopotamia, he would have most likely used rocks, clay, maybe some rough brush that was probably very dry and brittle. There is not much in the way of trees or vegetation, so it would be tough to shade yourself from the heat of the midday sun. In fact, when I looked up the climate for this area... In northern Iraq, this is what it said, quote, mostly desert, mild to cool winters with dry, hot, cloudless summers. Average temperatures range from higher than 120 degrees Fahrenheit in July and August. That is hot. 
<laughs> With no cloud cover for relief. Cloudless summer days. And Jonah is determined to sit there and see what would become of this, these people, even in the midst of this heat. Then we see God act graciously to Jonah in verse 6. He appoints this plant to grow in order to shade him from the unrelenting sun. As the readers, we should be drawn to the irony here in the wording. The text says, he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is the first time in the book of Jonah that we actually hear or read of Jonah being glad or happy. But the writer draws a stark contrast between Jonah's attitude here when he is exceedingly glad for the plant and in verse 1 of chapter 4 when we were told that he was exceedingly displeased and angry. The irony can't be lost on how Jonah is pleased with God when God is merciful and gracious to him, but displeased when God is merciful and gracious to Nineveh. Jonah is sitting in this hut in the shade of this plant, maybe with his feet kicked up, reclining, waiting, and watching to see what God will do to this city. And at this point, it's kind of living large, even though it's probably still hot. He's comfortable because God has been gracious to him and shielded him with this plant with big leaves that he can rest under. So he turns in for the night, sleeps well because he had the comfort of that shade, Maybe he even thanks God for it. I don't know. We're not told that. Um, but I would like to think that he did. Uh, but then, in an instant, his situation changes. When he wakes up and he comes to in the morning, he realizes that this plant that he had grown so fond of is no longer. It's gone. Probably dried up and withering over top or behind this hut that he had built for himself. Not only that, there's a fierce wind that is sweeping over the wilderness where he is. The booth that he had built did not built only did so much to shield him from the elements, and it was not suited to keep this hot wind that was probably blowing sand and dried debris all over the place. The desert sun is beating down, the hot, gross wind is whipping around him, and there's no respite. So he resorts to the same thing that he did earlier in this chapter. He wants to die. And he tells God to take his life. It's better for me to die than to live. Under these circumstances, I don't actually know that I blame him. But God isn't done with him yet. He wants to teach him, and by extension, us, something through this situation. So God asks him the same question that was presented in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? This is in a reference to the plant, though, not God sparing Nineveh. Jonah sees himself as being in the right, sitting here, waiting for the destruction of the capital city of a mortal enemy of Israel. He sees it fitting to hope that they would be crushed. Jonah's answer, in his mind, is right and true. He shouldn't be suffering like this because he did his part. As far as I can tell, Jonah has made himself the victim and he's wallowing now in his own self-pity. The last three verses of 6, 7, and 8 all use the same word when speaking of how the plant, the worm, and the wind all came about at God's appointment. This is, the one, this is one of those instances that Colin had referred to uh, last time when describing the word 
when a word is repeated. Colin spoke of the word great or exceedingly being used over and over in Jonah and even here again in this passage. And here we see the phrase God appointed three times, three verses in a row. And it's used a total of four times in this book of Jonah. In these three, in these three verses and for the great fish in chapter 1, verse 17. This once again points to God's sovereign rule over all of creation. He uses both a massive fish and a tiny worm, a great wind on the, on the sea and a scorching wind on the land to do his bidding. Who else can do this? No one. Only our God. The same God that Jonah is asking now to kill him. Jonah knows this, and he's been taught the truths of God from a young age. He's a prophet of this very God that we speak of. Not to mention that earlier in the story, he had learned this lesson that all of creation is subject to the power and purposes of Yahweh. We know this too. We speak of it, and we sing of it, and we love the sovereignty of God. But how often do we think about the practicality of how this plays out in our lives? All things, everything that you do, everything that Jonah did, every second of every day is within the sovereign power of God. He knows exactly how many seconds you will be awake today, tomorrow, and the next. He knows the numbers of hair on your head, and in fact, the days that you will be on this earth. We don't know any of these things. We have these fancy watches and apps and all kinds of stuff like that to track sleep and all that, but... They can't even begin to come close to tell us what God already knows. The fact that God is completely sovereign is something that gives great comfort to Christians. It gives us peace in times of turmoil because he is an anchor in an ever-changing world. But how often do we take his provision for granted? How often do we sit back in complacency like Jonah, thinking that we have it all figured out and that we're in the right? Even if we know of God's goodness and sovereignty, we often fail to live as if it were true. And I pray that the Lord would use this passage now and in the future to do to us as he did to Jonah. Use it to get our attention. To draw his children back to him, even in the midst of their sin and suffering or unbelief. Use it to restore the relationship that has been tainted by sin and to refresh our souls. In verse 9 God asks a pointed question of Jonah in order to use Jonah's response as a teaching point. He asks the question to expose Jonah again, just as he was exposed by the sailors in chapter 1. He's exposed again here, not just to the elements of sun and the hot wind, but his heart is exposed. Why was he mad about the plant? Why did he not want to go to Nineveh in the first place? Why did he run from God towards Tarshish? Because Jonah knew the heart of God, as he said in verse 2 of chapter 4, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows the character of God. He loves the character of God when it benefits him. But he doesn't love God being merciful to those who Jonah sees as not worthy of that mercy. Jonah's response shows that he values a plant more than he does people. To him, 
The stalk and leaves of this plant are more important than the souls and lives of people that are in Nineveh. He cares more that he would be able to be comfortable in the here and now than he does for the people of Nineveh finding true comfort in the word of God. It exposes his selfish, sinful heart, which we have seen on display throughout the book and one more time here in the final chapter. At this point, at the conclusion of the book, God uses Jonah's response to point to the inconsistencies in his life. He shines a spotlight on Jonah's blind spot, so to speak. God says, you pity the plant that miraculously came into being for your comfort. By the way, this is the mercy of God. And should I not pity Nineveh, a city where there are thousands and thousands of people who just like you, who just like you were, are spiritually bankrupt and need my mercy? God created both the plant and the human beings in Nineveh. Does he not have the ability and is he not allowed to love the Ninevites who he created in his own image? According to Jonah, doesn't seem so. But just like us and just like Jonah, they are created in the image of God, created to bring him glory and honor. But that image is shattered at the fall when Adam and Eve attempted to usurp God's power. So what did God do? He sent them a prophet to proclaim his word to them so that they would in turn turn from their evil and towards God. It just so happens that this prophet, Jonah, really didn't want them to heed the warning that he was preaching. But that brings us to the great reality presented in Jonah. This book is not about Jonah, even though it bears his name. It's about the God who Jonah warned the people of Nineveh about. It's about the beauty of the character of God rather than the lack of character that Jonah displayed. It points to the promised seed of the woman who would crush the enemy's head that caused Adam and Eve to fall. It points directly to Jesus Christ, who was the greater prophet sent from the Father to warn mankind of this coming judgment. Think of the contrast between these two prophets. Jonah ran away from God when he had been when when he had called him and what he had called him to do Jesus willingly ran towards the world in need to do his father's will Jonah needed to have his sinful heart revealed to him Jesus revealed the hearts of man as he lovingly asked them questions and called them to trust in him Jonah was arrogant and saw the Ninevites as less than Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, and became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jonah cared about a plant. Jesus cared about, cares and did care about people. He cares about you. Jonah complained and wanted to die in the heat of the desert when he was no longer comfortable. Jesus left the comfort of heaven to take on flesh and wrongfully be punished so that you and I may live. Jonah wanted to see the wrath of God fall on Nineveh with no mercy. Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross for his people and in fact is the greatest revelation of the mercy of God. 
Jesus is the greater prophet who this book points to. It clearly reveals the character of God and the fact that he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious to and have mercy on whom he will have mercy. God will do his work as as he sees fit. And he continues, even now, to save sinners in this way. This is God's prerogative. As we reflect on Jonah, and maybe we see ourselves in how Jonah acted throughout this book, we can remember that we, just like him, need to look to Christ, the greater prophet. The one who came to earth to live perfectly and took upon himself our sins and our trespasses. The one who cares for the souls who have been created in his image, and the one who also called us, who have been reconciled to him, to share this message of reconciliation to the world. As this book closes, we see that in the middle of Jonah's sin and wavering, God comes back to, back to him to call him back to God. God lovingly rebukes Jonah. It's as if, in a fatherly way, God kneels down to Jonah's level and says, you pity the plant, but that has no eternal worth or significance. I'm a perfectly merciful, perfectly just, and perfectly gracious God, and I pity sinners, including those who are in Nineveh. That's why I sent you here in the first place. Jonah, do you see what you're overlooking You're you're looking right past the very mercy that I first extended to you. The very grace that you have been a recipient of. We can't miss this, friends. This is the message of Jonah in a nutshell. As the book closes, it does so with a question from God reverberating. Should I not pity Nineveh? It closes on this note as if to get the reader to consider this question being asked of themselves. What would you do in this situation? Would you care more about the plant that makes you comfortable? Or would you care more about the soul that is in anguish and torture because they do not know the God who has created all things and holds all things in his mighty power? Think of the words from the hymn, His Mercy is More. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is is more. Praise the Lord. When we sing these words, we're reminded that we too were like the Ninevites, spiritually bankrupt, not knowing our right hand from our left, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And because this is true, even if we, like Jonah, are struggling with the promises of God and to fully understand his character, even if and when we have moments of doubt being overcome by sin or failing to see our own blind spots, this does not place us outside God's love and grace. Christian, when you struggle and fall short as Jonah did, remember and cling to the character of of God. As Romans 5:8 says, Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. That's how God showed his love. You have been justified by his blood and you will be like the Ninevites. Or wait. You have been justified by his blood and you will be like the Ninevites were in Jonah, saved 
and spared from the wrath of God. Amen.